Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General podcast. I am Al, and today we're going to be examining another topic in historical gaming. Specifically, we're going to be talking about Oceana. Oceana is defined as the various islands and nations in the Pacific Ocean and includes things like the Hawaiian Islands, Australia, New Zealand, uh, the Caroline Islands, uh, Micronesia, French Polynesia, Tahiti, uh, Fiji. So there are a lot of islands out there and look at any map of the Pacific and you'll see what I mean because not only do we have some of the larger island chains, but there's a lot of smaller ones as well. So it can be kind of tricky choosing where you would want to base a campaign in Oceania. Now, today I'm going to focus primarily on Hawaii and New Zealand, because I think there's there's a, quite a bit of potential there. And another reason, which I'll get to in just a moment, Australia, I think, would be another great place to do a historical D&D campaign. But not going to be talking about Australia today because somewhere down the line, I'd like to dedicate an entire episode to Australia. So, like I said, today we're going to be focusing primarily on New Zealand and Hawaii because they have larger land masses and also they're a bit closer together than some of the other uh, island nations in the Pacific. A campaign set in the Pacific is going to have a lot different feel and flavor than a campaign set on a continent like the Americas or Europe or uh, Asia or Africa. And the reason for that is, well, it's going to be a lot harder to travel between nation to nation by land. You're going to have to do it by boat. And just to give you an idea of the scale of the distance between some of these islands, Let's go back to the 1970s. There's an organization called the Polynesian Voyaging Society. And what they sought to do was preserve some of the ancient Polynesian navigation techniques. And they created or constructed a twin-hulled Polynesian voyaging canoe called Hokalea. And for any astronomy buffs out there, Hokalea is the name that they gave to the star Arcturus in the constellation of Buotes, the herdsman. So when you're going to do a campaign that involves a lot of island hopping, one of the first things I'd recommend you do is you're probably going to want to introduce magic items that increase the speed of a boat pretty early in the campaign. And here's why. Now in 1976, the Polynesian Voyaging Society took Hokalea on a trip from Hawaii to Tahiti. That's a distance of a bit over 2,600 miles. When they sailed from Hawaii to Tahiti, they only used traditional Polynesian navigation techniques. So, a little bit more margin for error. Um, And in this situation, it took them a little over four weeks to make that 2,600 mile journey. Again, its course wasn't perfectly a straight line. And when they went the trip back from Tahiti to Hawaii, this time they used 
modern navigation techniques. And still, it took him about a little over three weeks to make the return journey. So as you can see, when you're traveling these great distances, yeah, it's going to take quite a bit of time to get from point A to point B. And if all you're doing is spending most of the campaign having characters make navigation checks and uh, sailing checks, well, the campaign is going to lose its excitement rather quickly. So that's why I would recommend having these uh, boats with that travel faster than normal early on just to make the campaign a little bit more exciting and to make things move a little faster. That's also another reason why I would recommend Hawaii and uh, New Zealand because you're going to have a lot more areas to explore where, like with the Hawaiian Islands, uh, you can probably sail between most of those islands in a day or two. Um, also, there are some places in the Central Pacific, some of the areas there that are island chains that are closer together. Uh, we've got like Samoa, Fiji, and Tonga. Uh, the Solomon Islands in the Western Pacific might be a good place. They're fairly close to Australia and Papua New Guinea. And with New Zealand, uh, that's, I believe, two the two large main islands, and then there's a few smaller outlying islands. So also I want to mention before we get too far into the episode here, I am probably going to be mispronouncing a lot of these words. So if there's anyone out there who actually knows how to correctly pronounce these words, I do apologize that I'm probably going to be uh, butchering the pronunciation. So let's start by taking a look at the different classes. Now I think most of the classes could fit probably the ones that you would have the most difficulty fitting in are the Druid, the Paladin, and the Thief. Now the Paladin, again, if we're looking at the Paladin not necessarily as the you know the mounted knight in shining armor, but just like a holy warrior, as far as I can tell, there wasn't really much of a concept of a holy warrior in the Polynesian societies, so that's why I would rule that out. The Druid, again, I guess he could integrate a a, a priest that focuses on nature and preserving the balance, but like I said, I think that the druid usually is a little too heavily associated with uh, European culture, so that probably wouldn't uh, really make a very good fit. And then the thief, well, you probably couldn't use thieves. They would be more like your scouts or your spies, and the uh, they would be losing a lot of their thieving abilities, though. As far as I know, they really didn't have any sort of lock-type system, so picking locks would probably be out. Uh, picking pockets, probably not very common. I don't think they really had anything that would be pockets, but, you know, maybe they would have, you know, like a, a pouch they might carry. I suppose you could use pickpockets for that. Now, when James and I discussed Native American campaigning, he did make a point that I didn't consider, and that is, while we might not have traps like, you know, poison needle traps or these other intricate traps we see in your typical D&D campaign, there probably could have been some types of hunting traps that they could have used, like nets or pitfalls. So, 
I, I think you could still find use for that as, uh, you know, that skill being able to find traps and either find a way to disarm it or safely avoid it. So probably the skills that you're going to be focusing most on for a thief would be move silently, hide in shadows, and climb walls, which of course wouldn't really be climbing walls, but more, you know, climbing trees and other natural formations. Like I said, not saying you couldn't use a thief in this type campaign, but they would be fairly limited as to like a scout or a spy. And I suppose you could also do them as a, a trickster type. Well, let's move on to some of the classes that probably would be more common. Of course, the fighter, because, well, fighters are common in just about every culture out there. And the fighter is actually going to take a different flavor, depending on whether you are uh, focusing on Hawaiian culture or New Zealand, which is the home of the the Moray culture. And, or Maori, I think it's pronounced Maori. So, to start with Maori, one thing that's interesting here, and when I was doing my research, is that I found out the warriors there did practice war dances, some of which were similar to the kata, or forms that we see in a lot of the Asian martial arts. Now, one page I read said that these dances were actually used to hide techniques. And I could appreciate that right away because that's actually not unlike the style of Kung Fu I studied, where the form didn't always perfectly replicate how you would use that that skill as a combative technique. As my Kung Fu instructor told me, one of the reasons they, that, that you do that is to hide your techniques to prevent some you know, people from learning them just by watching them. So I found that interesting and you know, it definitely makes sense. Now, another very well-known type of war dance that the, 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 uh, the New Zealanders, the Maori did was the haka. A haka is a type of dance where usually it's done by a group of warriors They'll slap their chests or their thighs and do several chants. Now, the purpose of the haka was to, well, it had two purposes. First, you would use it to psych yourself up for battle. And if you saw your enemy, you know, you would do haka before your enemy because it was hoped that you would uh, scare him before the battle even started. Because in addition to slapping your chest or your your thighs. Another part of the the haka was making fierce facial expressions, doing things like bulging out your eyes or sticking out your tongue, which I remember when they were talking about the Maori warriors on uh, the old TV series, The Deadliest Warrior, the person representing the uh, Maori was saying that the reason you stuck out your tongue is because, well, in some of these cultures... It, they were cannibals. So if you were sticking out your tongue at someone, it meant you were saying, I'm going to kill you, eat you, and turn you into feces, which essentially is probably about, about the biggest insult you could possibly imagine. Now, if you're using the second edition rules, 
you could actually use this um, Maori warrior practice, the haka, to allow something similar to the berserker. Now, we usually associate berserkers with Northern Europe, as these were Scandinavian warriors who entered this, this state where they were just so so fierce and so strong that they were practically invincible. And that's what I think the Hakka could do. So you could allow Berserker-type classes, except instead of uh, praying to Odin or a war god to go Berserk, they would psych themselves up by using the Hakka. Because in the second edition Complete Fighter's Handbook, they mention in there that in that particular case, a Berserker doesn't just instantly go Berserk. He needs some time to psych himself up. And when TSR released the uh, Vikings Handbook for their historical reference series, they did make the Berserker as its own class. And in that one, you had to make a saving throw versus, I think, Death Magic to go Berserk. So it, it became progressively easier to go Berserk as you gained levels. So you could probably incorporate one of those uh, aspects of the the Berserker when you are doing a, an Oceana campaign. Or another option, if you don't like the idea of the, the kits, you could maybe have it as a weapon proficiency someone would could take, but make it a skill unique to fighters. To talk about Hawaiian warriors, now I did do some research on a Hawaiian martial art, which... And again, I'm probably going to be mispronouncing this. Uh, Kapu Kualua, which is normally called just Lua for short. So if you are going to be doing a monk class like, you know, first edition or in the third through uh, fifth edition, they have the monk class in there. You could have them as practitioners of the Lua martial art. Now, one Another thing you could do in the second edition, Complete Ninja's Handbook, they did create guidelines for making a martial art. And from what I understand, Lua would actually be somewhat similar to Jiu-Jitsu, where they did a lot of wrestling and a lot of grappling. But not only that, they also focused quite a bit on bone-breaking. Another interesting thing about Lua is... With It was very dualistic, where not only did they study ways to hurt people, but they also studied healing as well. So one rule you could use is if you do have a warrior who is a practitioner of Lua, you could have it that he could learn healing or herbalism proficiencies at normal cost instead of the more expensive costs that a warrior would normally have to pay. So that's a quick look at a couple of the different fighters. Um, Lua, it is still practiced as a martial art as it did go through a period of decline when it was considered taboo to practice it. But thanks to the efforts of some of the families that were still practicing Lua, it has survived into the current day. The Hakka has also survived into the current day. It's From what I understand, it's a fairly common practice for a lot of the rugby teams from New Zealand and some of these other nations in uh, the Pacific to perform uh, haka before your opponent 
before the match begins. So if you have a chance, go to YouTube and look up Haka, and you'll you know probably find several videos of these rugby teams performing Haka, and they're actually very interesting to watch. I mean, these guys just put a ton of intensity into their the Haka that they're doing there. I mean, you can just see the you know, the intensity and the power that these guys are putting into it. Now, the next warrior class, the ranger, well, this, if, I don't think a ranger would be entirely inappropriate, especially if you are doing a fantasy uh, historical campaign. But again, we need to focus a bit more on his role as an explorer, as opposed to the, the warrior woodsman or the scout that he would have in some of the editions of D&D. So if you use the kits from 2nd edition, the Sea Ranger kit and the Explorer kit would both be very good choices for a, a Ranger in the Pacific Ocean. You're probably going to find uh, Rangers more prevalent in Hawaii and New Zealand because since you're dealing with a lot larger uh, area of land there, there's going to be naturally more wilderness to explore. So I guess you could say that rangers in those types of environments would probably fit more into the warrior woodsman uh, classification, whereas the ones in the, the the island nations in the middle of the Pacific, they would focus more on the exploratory and survival role as opposed to the whole warrior in the woods theme. Well, next we move on to the bard. Now, like in many ancient cultures, storytelling was very important as, you know, since they lacked a written language, one of the ways that they would uh, trans, one of the ways they would pass on their stories was by a storyteller. So the bard's role as a keeper of lore and a, a musician and an entertainer, a, a public speaker, that would still fit very well in the Oceana setting. I would recommend taking away the thief abilities because if a bard in the Pacific Ocean is going to focus more on the storytelling and the diplomatic aspects of that class, probably not going to focus more really too much on the thieving abilities and I could see allowing him to keep some of the wizard spells that they would use. But again, they would probably focus more on things like illusion, which you know they could use to enhance their storytelling performances, or maybe some of the other more non-combative types of magic. I mean, I could see divination being something that they would focus on, but probably not really very uh, logical to have a Pacific bard running around casting lightning bolts and fireballs. But if if that if you want to allow a bard in a Oceana campaign to do that, hey, you know, go right ahead. Next we move on to the spell casting classes. I think that there's a lot of potential for uh, actually multi classing in in a Polynesian uh, campaign. Uh, now I know of course that usually humans are not allowed to multi class, but in a Pacific campaign, I can see that make being an exception. And here's what I mean. Now, in Hawaii, there was a profession called the kahuna. 
And some of you, if you've ever watched any surfing movies, you've probably heard the term big kahuna. uh, And you might wonder, well, what exactly is a kahuna? Usually it's uh, given to the guy who's the, you know, the best surfer on the beach and, you know, the one who all the women are flocking around. You know, the women want to be with him and the guys want to be him. The title kahuna actually applies to quite a number of different types of professions. A kahuna, or a tohunga, as it's called in the Maori culture, they are essentially an expert in a specific type of field. So a kahuna could be a priest, it could be a magician, a a medical healer, a navigator, a teacher, a craftsman, a boat builder. So basically, if you're an expert in some sort of field like that, you're a kahuna or a tohunga. In Hawaii alone, there were about 40 different types of healing kahuna. So I could see if you you could allow a kahuna to be a cleric, a wizard, or even a multi-class cleric wizard. So that's one situation where I could certainly see allowing your uh, a human to multi-class, even though, well, at least in first and second edition, humans weren't supposed to multi-class. Now, while we're on the subject of the religions of the Pacific Ocean, uh, there's a couple of terms we'd like to talk about. In Hawaii, there's a term called kapu, and these were things that were considered taboo. Breaking a kapu was said to be a very, very serious crime. And again, there were all sorts of kapus in ancient Hawaiian society. For example, there were certain foods that women were not allowed to eat, uh, such as some types of bananas, coconuts, pork. Those were considered masculine foods that only men were allowed to partake in. And there were also a wide variety of these, these social taboos. So if you broke a taboo, it could mean serious punishment, even death. Again, going back to Lua, it was considered... Kapu to teach Lua to someone outside of your social standing. And there's a way you could even work Kapu into uh, into your campaign. If the party ends up breaking one of these taboos, there were some areas where they're... Now, I forgot the, the native term for them, but they were essentially a, a temple or a sanctuary. And if the person who broke that taboo could make it to one of these uh, these sanctuaries, he could ask a priest to atone him for his crimes so that he wouldn't face the punishment. So that's something you could certainly integrate into your uh, Polynesian campaign where if the players do break a taboo, they have to find a way to the a priest so they can atone for their crime. Now in New Zealand, they had a very similar word, tapu. And tapu, it was considered something that was holy as opposed to something that was taboo. And again, there were various things that were considered so holy that you uh, weren't allowed to do them unless you were part of a certain uh, social class. And there's even some things you couldn't do if you were a part of a certain class. For example, uh, the priests, the uh, tohungas who... Uh, worked with uh, the dead and who practiced various funeral funeral rites. They were actually not allowed to touch food. So whenever they wanted to eat or drink, 
they had to have someone else uh, feed them or give them the, the, the drink. Now, another term from Polynesian culture that I'm sure a lot of you are probably going to recognize is mana. It's a term in a lot of video games that's used to describe your magic power. And that actually is something that we do see in Polynesian uh, cultures. And what mana is, it is an impersonal power that you had at birth and you earned through various deeds. So it could really be thought of as influence. That's probably a good way to think of mana. So influence or this mana, I think you could use it to produce fear or awe in others. So you could also use it to influence your roles. But I'd recommend that if you decide to incorporate a mana system in a Polynesian campaign, of course, every time that they use mana, you're going to want to have it deplete how much mana they have. Um, Otherwise, players are probably going to use it as a crutch instead of actually role-playing or thinking of a strategy to escape a situation. Now, of course, there's many different deities in Polynesian cultures, so I'm going to focus on just some of the main ones. Now, there is one figure that we do see in actually several cultures, and that is Maui. And he's the name of one of the Hawaiian islands as well. In some cultures, Maui is a demigod. Other times, he's just a trickster hero. And he has had several different deeds of attributed to him. There's one story that he was the one who actually pulled the Hawaiian islands from the bottom of the ocean. It was said that Maui was out fishing with his brothers and he told his brothers to take him to a a special place where he would catch a lot of fish. However, he could only catch fish on the condition that they don't watch him while he fished. So Maui threw his fishing hook into the water And he, you know, they waited and waited. And then all of a sudden he felt a pull. And Maui told his brothers to start rowing. And his brothers were, they were rowing very hard. So they could tell that Maui had hooked a really big fish. Well, Maui wouldn't tell them what was going on. And, you know, they're like, Maui, did you catch a whale? Did you catch a shark? What did you catch? But Maui wouldn't tell them. Well, They turned around to look and see what he was up to. And that's when they saw that Maui had pulled the bottom of the ocean up. And that's how they believed the Hawaiian islands were formed. However, when the brothers looked upon Maui, it broke the spell that he had on his fish hook, which caused his fishing line to snap. And it said that his fishing hook flew up into the sky, where it became the constellation that we now know as Scorpio the Scorpion. Another story I remember about Maui, it said that he actually was the one who separated the earth and the sky. Because it was said that long ago that the sky was so low that it forced people to hunch over so they couldn't walk upright. And Maui, well, he didn't like any of that, so he was actually strong enough to lift the sky up to its current position. Let's take a look at some of the deities of New Zealand. First, there is Ranji. And he was the 
Skyfather type god. So you could, well, if you're using like the complete priest handbook from second edition, he could fill that particular type of role if you wanted to create a priest cast that served that particular god. There was also Papa, which was the Earth Mother. Another important god was Rihua, who was the god of healing. And it was said he could raise the dead and cure any disease. Tengora was the god of the sea. And I'm probably going to mispronounce this one, but Tama Nui Tira. And that was the god of the sun. Now we also see another legend about Maui here. It was said that Maui thought that Tama Nui Tira traveled too quickly across the sky. So he decided that the daytime should be longer. So he caught the god in a trap and beat him up until he promised he would move across the sky more slowly. Another important god, Tuma Tua Enga, which is the god of war and hunting, and he was often invoked before battles. And it was said if a parent wanted their child to be a warrior, uh, he might decide to dedicate their infant to that particular god. Another one, and this one seemed kind of interesting, uh, almost kind of like a Cthulhu-type power, and that was Wiro, the god of darkness, the underworld, and the personification of evil. It is said that people needed to be cremated upon death because if they weren't cremated, then Wiro would eat the body. And it's said that when he eats enough bodies, he will finally be strong enough to break free of the underworld in which he'll come up from the underworld and destroy everything. Now moving on to Hawaii, uh, the four main deities of Hawaiian mythology are Kene, the supreme god, uh, god of the sun, the sky, and creation, Kanaloa, the god of magic and the underworld, Lono, the god of peace, fertility, music, and rain, and then finally there's Q, who's the god of war. Now, Q was one of the few gods in Hawaiian mythology that's known to have required human sacrifice as part of the, the worship of that particular deity. Now, if we already mentioned Maui. Again, he was in Hawaii, he was actually considered more of a demigod as opposed to just a trickster hero. There was also Hina, the goddess of the moon, and she was known in several other parts of Oceania as well. Kapo the goddess of dark magic. And it said that if a kahuna wanted to do a death prayer, they wanted to pray someone to death, this was the goddess that they would pray to. And finally, Pele, the goddess of fire, lightning, wind, and volcanoes. Now Pele is said to inhabit uh, one of the active volcanoes on Hawaii, which again, I apologize if I mispronounced this, the Helima... Umau Crater on Kililiwa, and I, well, I probably totally slaughtered that pronunciation. I do apologize, but uh, there she's actually made her way into a bit of uh, modern folklore as supposedly people who take rocks from around the volcano find themselves cursed with bad luck by taking these rocks because supposedly that angered Pele. And supposedly the Hawaiian Park Service gets 
packages in the mail containing rocks and people were saying that, you know, I took this rock when I was visiting and, you know, I've been having bad luck ever since. Please put it back. I'm sorry. Though, whether that's actually has any basis in folklore is to be debated. Um, the When I was doing research on this before, uh, it's believed that the Hawaiian uh, park rangers actually made up that story or maybe not the whole, the the park rangers, but rather the people who drove the tour buses around there, probably because they were tired of people coming back into the bus being all muddy and dirty from collecting these rocks. So just still a little bit interesting piece of modern folklore there. Let's move on to weapons and armor. In a lot of Polynesian cultures, the primary weapons were spears and clubs. So a lot of times the spear tips would be made of a bone or stone. I know that they used obsidian in a lot of their tools uh, because obsidian can be cut to have a very, very sharp edge. I'm not sure if it was actually used in any of their uh, spears or weapons though. So another type of interesting club we see in Polynesia is the shark tooth club. So these were clubs that had shark teeth uh, lashed into them. So from a game mechanic standpoint, you could probably treat those as short swords. They did have bows, but from what I understand, they bows were tended to be used more for hunting than actual war. The preferred mi- missile weapons were slings and javelins. Hawaiians also had a unique weapon, the double dagger. Now, the double dagger could be as simple as a stick that was sharpened on both ends. Traditionally, these wooden double daggers were made out of koa, which is a type of strong tree. And koa also had some other meanings as well. It could also mean strong or brave or fearless, and I believe it was also a term that was given to someone who was a warrior as well. Now these double daggers could be as simple as a stick that's just sharpened on both ends, or it could be more elaborate with a handguard, possibly even set with shark teeth for a little punching power. Also in Hawaiian martial arts, we tend to see an emphasis on tripping and entangling and trapping your opponent. Another common weapon was the pikoi, which was a rock that was attached to a rope or a vine. Usually, this weapon was used in your offhand, and you would use it to either trip or entangle your opponent. Also, some noble warriors were known to wear cloaks that had fibers with made of fiber with uh, various feathers worked into it as well. And these cloaks, they were also used for entangling as well as parrying enemy attacks. Now in New Zealand, not in that area over on the Western Pacific, not only did they have single-headed spears, but they were also known to use double-headed spears as well. Usually one of the heads was bigger than the other, so the, the smaller head was used more as a counterbalance, but you could still use it in a pinch, so it also was very helpful. So in case the tip of the, the spear broke, you wouldn't be completely defenseless. You'd still have another spearhead you could fall back on. Also, they were known to use short staves tipped with stingray spines. 
another important weapon is the jade club or miri. And these clubs were small but very heavy as they were carved out of jade. Not only were they valuable because of the material they were made of, but because of the time and craftsmanship that it would take to make one of these clubs. Now, moving on to armor, they did make use of shields. So, as I mentioned when we talked about uh, like the, the Native American campaigning, and I even mentioned this when we talked about Egypt, since these cultures didn't really wear a lot of armor, uh, the shield was your primary means of defense. So, I think it's reasonable to allow some sort of shield specialization. Nobles were sometimes known to wear helmets made of either a gourd or woven fiber. And some even had fiber armor, which, again, probably the equivalent of a padded or studded leather armor. If a major battle was expected, some Hawaiian warriors would shave themselves and coat themselves in coconut oil. So this wasn't really meant to absorb or deflect blows like most armor was. Rather, it was so that you would be harder to grapple since, as I mentioned before, in Lua, there's a big emphasis on wrestling and grappling with your opponent. Another interesting form of protection you could introduce is the shark tooth vest. And this would be a fiber vest that had shark teeth woven into it. And the reason for that you would wear these vests is so that if your opponent did try to grapple you, well, they'd have those little shark teeth woven in them, so that would you know make it a little harder for them to get a good grip because if they tried to like bear hug you or take you to the ground, they would hurt themselves on those shark teeth. There was also a great emphasis on tattoos in some of these Polynesian cultures. I think you could implement this as well, where you could get special types of tattoos that could grant an armor class bonus or maybe even a saving throw bonus. You could even make other ones that would function similar to like a ring of fire protection. Now if you did decide to use tattoos like this as protection, I would recommend only allowing the bonuses though if the character is not wearing armor. Getting one of these tattoos though should not be easy. It could require uh, ink mixed with rare or hard-to-obtain herbs, or you might only be able to get one of these magical tattoos from an exceptionally skilled artist whose services would not come cheap. Also, I would, rec I would recommend that if a character in a Polynesian campaign does decide to get one of these special tattoos, he should be required to make a constitution or a strength check, mainly to see if he can handle the pain. And if he fails, well, he still gets that tattoo, but it doesn't actually uh, give him the the power or the protection that it was supposed to. Because I read that uh, some of the ways they did these tattoos, they used sharp bone tools, um, some of them serrated. So can't imagine that being very comfortable. Well, finally, let's talk about some of the monsters that you might encounter in Polynesia. In Hawaii... One of the most famous types of creatures are the night marchers. These are ghosts from Hawaiian folklore, and sometimes it was said that they would escort dying relatives to the afterlife. You had to treat these guys with respect, otherwise you could fall under a curse or they might attack you. 
And it was said that if you saw them, they would first see them in the distance. You would hear drums and you would see them carrying torches. And then you might even see mist approaches. They got closer and sometimes there would be a, a terrible smell to go with them as well. It's prudent to get out of their path if you see them coming. Otherwise, you can avoid them by laying face down. Now, Hawaiian folklore does give us a creature similar to the werewolf. It's called the kaupi. And it was a, they looked like huge muscular people with fur and with dog-like heads. It was said that they would trick people into dangerous situations, often by pretending to be a person in distress. Another type of creature we see are the menihuni, and these are the little people of Hawaii. You could probably put them similar to gnomes or dwarves. They were said to be excellent builders, and native Hawaiians often credit them for any unexplained ancient structures that they had no record of. They usually lived in caves or deep in the forest. Finally, there's also the mole which spelled M-O apostrophe O, uh, not sure how it's pronounced, Mo'o or, or Mu, but these are lizard-like creatures. And it was said that they could inhabit ponds, and sometimes they would try to drown people. In New Zealand, there is a type of creature called the Manea, and this was a, looked like a man with a head of a bird. It was said that they were spiritual messengers, and they could protect against evil. Another type of spirit were the Patupairihi, and these are spirits who lived in mountains or forests of New Zealand. And they could be similar to elves, sometimes hostile. Uh, they would usually be encountered while singing or playing music. If you treat them with respect, you might be able to enter an alliance with them. Otherwise, like I said, if you treat them rudely, they could be quite hostile. There's also shape-shifting demons called tipua, and it was said they could turn into various plants, animals, or even inanimate objects. There's also another type of creature called the pouakai, and this is a giant bird, which is said to be inspired by the extinct host's eagle. So realistically, they would just be really big eagles. But I suppose in a fantasy campaign, we could take that a step further and make them the equivalent of a rock. Another type of spirit we see are the Taniwa. These are beings who lived in caves, deep rivers, or in the ocean. And they could also be friendly or hostile. And they were said to be shapeshifters, often when encountered in the in the water, they would be taking the form of a whale or a shark. Finally, and again, I'm probably going to totally mangle the pronunciation here, but Te Weki a Muturangi, and this is an octopus-like monster, so you could probably treat those as a kraken. A couple others I encountered were the Luvi Niwai, these were native to Fiji, they're small, fairy-like creatures that were said to be skilled in both song and dance. And finally, the Medjinquad. This is a demon lady who was often tried to possess a woman who had recently given birth. This type of demon is native to the Marshall Islands. 
Her distinguishing feature is she had bleeding gums and an insane look in her eye, and she could stretch her neck great distances. A couple of the other types of monsters from Dungeons and Dragons, the Koatoa and the Sahagan. So even though there's not really an equivalent to those types of creatures in uh, Polynesian mythology, I think you could get away with introducing them because those creatures lived in the sea. And since a Polynesian campaign could have a very you know, strong emphasis on the ocean and exploring the, the sea, it's not unrealistic to assume that your characters could come into contact with these types of creatures. Well, I think I'm going to call this episode to a close. So I hope you found the information here helpful if you decide that you want to run a Polynesian-themed campaign. So I definitely encourage you to do some more, to do further research on your own, as there's a lot of interesting uh, aspects of a Polynesian culture that you might want to incorporate into your campaign. So with that said, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. Have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming.